Welcome to London Lopate at Large. I'm London Lopate. Herman and Joseph Mankiewicz wrote, produced, and directed over 150 movies. Herman shared an Oscar for screenwriting with Orson Welles for Citizen Kane, while Joe earned two Oscars for writing and directing All About Eve. They both started in the 1920s writing captions for silent films, and for many years, both wrote screenplays and produced movies as diverse as Monkey Business, Pride of the Yankees, Cleopatra, and Guys and Dolls. Neither seemed to derive much satisfaction from those successful careers and yearned for more intellectual achievements. Sidney Lattison Stern has written a dual biography called The Brothers Mankiewicz, Hope, Heartbreak, and Hollywood Classics. It's published by University, of Press, University Press of Mississippi, and I'm very pleased that it brings Sidney Lattison Stern to our show now. Hello. Hi. Thank you for now, having is, me. Oh, <laughs> I thought the book was fascinating. The problem is there's so much to talk about. I'm sure we can't get to it all. And this is one complicated family, including their father. Yes, it's a very complicated family. And that's what I liked. I liked writing about complicated individuals. So I had two or three, I guess, with mm -hmm. the father. Now, the title is intriguing. Did you, you want your readers to think of your subjects as being kind of Dostoevsky in characters? Well, that was my fallback title. My original title was When Life Louses Up the Script, because <laughs> I wanted to telegraph that disappointment. That was what Joe used to say. You make all these plans and then life louses up the script. <laughs> but my publisher said, you don't have enough searchable words. So we have, yes, our Dostoevsky and Brothers Mankiewicz and then Hope, Heartbreak and Hollywood Classics, which kind of defines it, I hope. Now, the father, who's a fascinating character in his own right, Frank Mankiewicz, was a German-Jewish immigrant. Um, how old was he when he moved the family from New York to Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania? And, and why Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania? Well, because he was only 19 when he came to this country from Germany. And then in 1905, that means he would have been about what, 23, 33, I guess. He was not doing well in New York and he was drinking heavily, et cetera. It was a very pretty unhappy family in New York, but he was hired to be the editor of a German language newspaper in Wilkes-Barre. It has a large German speaking population. So when he moved there, he became a somebody instead of a nobody. And it was very much an upturn for their family. But then later, he uh, and his son, his oldest son, Herman, enrolled at Columbia in 1913. How did that work out? Well, what happened was Franz, who became Frank once he, he moved to Wilkes-Barre, he, you know, he sort of assimilated. Um, for part-time work to make more money, he started tutoring boys at the Hillman Academy and found he loved teaching, so he became a full-time teacher. Then he decided he wanted to go on and make teaching his life's work, so he wanted to go to Columbia. He had, he had some college education. He didn't have a BA or whatever the German equivalent was, but he was taking correspondence courses, so he decided if Herman could get in and he could get in, they would find a way. And so but, they both did and they moved to New York. But then, it must have been odd to have a father and son at a school at the same time. Meanwhile, Herman was 11 years older than Joseph. Were there any other siblings? Yes, in between there was a sister, Erna, and Joseph was a little surprised. Um, they were They were not even 40, so when I first read about it, it sounded like 
the mother was really old and this was a complete surprise, but it, she wasn't really that old in today's terms of motherhood. So there was Herman and Erna and a little family of four. And then suddenly there was Joe. Now, Frank taught in Wellsbury, by the way, in, in 1909. Frank went on to teach German at Stuyvesant High School and later became a college professor. Was he disappointed that neither of his sons followed him into academia? He was totally disappointed. He had plans for each of them. He had Herman, after he graduated, he went through Columbia in three years to save money. And to satisfy his father, he enrolled in graduate school for one semester. But it just wasn't Herman. And he had already written the varsity play for Columbia. He was the humor editor at the paper. He was a journalist. He was a, he was interested in theater. Academics was was not his interest, although their father felt it was the highest calling anyone could pursue. So he dropped out and started writing. And um, his their father always wanted them to pursue something higher. And then later on, when Herman didn't do it, he, he turned to Joe and had hoped Joe would become a college professor, which he but did But they not. both Herman had to live with their father's disapproval. Yes. By the way, Erna did become a high school teacher, so she at least fulfilled what he wanted them to do. Now, after college and a brief service in the Marines during World War One, what kind of work did Herman do? He, he did it in Berlin, I guess, because yes. he grew up in a German-speaking family. Well, first of all, he worked for the Red Cross, and then he was working for newspaper. And then after he got married, they, he and his wife, Sarah, went over in 1920. He told Sarah he had a job with the Chicago Tribune. He had no job. He just was faking it. So um, he managed to piece together um, newspaper work over there. And he also wrote a sort of a little theater column for the New York Times. He had become friendly with George S. Kaufman, et cetera. So uh, Kaufman was at the Times as the assistant theater editor, as the theater editor. So Herman was writing about theater and he was, he was always very political. He was always very historically oriented. And he came back to New York in 1922, expecting to have a really good job at the Times, which did not happen mm -hmm. right away. But eventually but he, also, he, did, he, he also wrote for the, the New Yorker, which uh, was making a start. And he was a publicist for Isadora Duncan. Interesting yes. early years. And <laughs> right. then well, he became and then he became a member of the Algonquin Round Table. Some people might consider that his most impressive accomplishment. Well, it was a very important part of his life. Those were friends for life, Dorothy Parker, um, certainly Kaufman, who was a mentor as well as a friend, Robert Sherwood, Robert Benchley, etc. And that sort of style of irreverent teasing and, and facetiousness stayed with him forever. Yes, that was very important to him. And then he collaborated uh, on some works with Georges Kaufman. Did they have any success together? Well, we know Kaufman was a really successful playwright, yeah. but one of his few failures was his, his um, play with Herman, which was The Good Fellow. He, they collaborated, and that around that, before they had finished, Herman moved to um, Hollywood and started writing for the movie. So they had to finish it up by long distance, and it was not a success. And at the same time, he was collaborating with Mark Connolly, who had been a collaborator with Kaufman, and that one was a failure, too. Wild Were Man they Ford. any good? Have you looked at them? 
I've looked at them. They had they actually were each made into a movie as well, and the there were just sort of problems. One of the problems with the one that that Herman did with Kaufman was they were both good at humorous lines. They weren't as great at creating sympathetic characters, which Kaufman and Edna Ferber's plays did much better because Edna Ferber was really good at that. So their strengths didn't really mesh, complement each other that well. But they remained friends, and, and Kaufman was always very fond of Herman and was desolate when Herman died. He was still alive. Well, he went to Hollywood, which was not at that point considered on a par as an art form with the theater. Um, moved to L.A. in 1925. How did he come to write I, his first film, The Road to Mandalay, starring Lon Chaney? Oh, okay. Well, first of all, um, it was it, it's an understatement to say it wasn't considered an equivalent art form. In today's world, when every young person I know wants to either write or direct or act in the movies, in those days, it had come out of Nickelodeons. And while theater, no matter how silly the play, was considered art with a capital A, movies were looked down upon. And while people like Herman, who had a gambling problem and a drinking problem, went out there to make some money, they looked down on it and they felt they were slumming. So what happened was he had a debt and he went out in, in 25 just for a few months to make enough money to pay that. He, he said everyone goes out for a lump sum. And he, was, he had an idea for a movie about the Marines. But when he got out there, Metro-Golden-Mayer, MGM, said, well, we want you to write something for Lon Chaney. So mm -hmm. he wrote this, you know, man of a thousand. Uh, that was Lon Chaney's thing. So he wrote this this movie about the the scary guy with one eye. <laughs> mm. So he, he was also encouraged to, to come to New York, get his friends to come to Hollywood. Uh, uh, what were Herman's contributions to the Marx Brothers movies, Monkey Business and Horse Feathers? Um, they, they, don't, they don't have much of a plot. Was he writing just some of the, the wittier Marx Brothers lines for Groucho? I don't even know which lines he wrote because they had so many people writing for that. He was appointed to supervise it. He was the producer. And his idea was you don't need a plot. You just need them standing around being funny, which they certainly are. And... Um, so he so he encouraged them not to have a plot, and he oversaw the, mm -hmm. the writers, and there were even ad-libbing as they were filming. So every, evidently, Eddie Cantor came one day, so he wrote a line. It was, it was chaos and anarchy. <laughs> you, you tell a, a, a wonderful story about uh, when Herman and his wife invited Harpo and Groucho to attend their, the family's Passover Seder. Yes, they would uh, put on the the uh, the green base, whatever. I wasn't even sure what that was. I think it was felt tablecloth, and and run around the the table, and lead all the children in madness. Harpo was particularly a good friend because he'd been an Algonquin person. Um, Groucho was also a good friend, and and Herman, in fact stopped giving the Marx Brothers, particularly Groucho, who was pretty much the leader, the jokes for the movies ahead of time because Groucho would go to his country club, Hillcrest, and tell all his comedian friends the jokes, and then he would think they were stale and make the writers write more. <laughs> now, Herman was one of, was the, the first of 10 screenwriters to work on The Wizard of Oz. Um, he didn't write the whole film, but he wrote what was later known as the Kansas sequence. Was it his idea to film the Kansas scenes in black and white when the rest of the yes. film was in color? 
Right. He didn't really approve of them making a movie of The Wizard of Oz. He wrote a long memo saying, don't do this. And when they said, yeah, well, we're doing it anyway, and why don't you write it? He wrote this silly thing. He made up something about a rich lady with another dog that was smarter than Toto and all that sort of got that out of his system. And then he started writing, and he is the one who said the Kansas sequence should not only be in black and white, they should be dull gray. It shouldn't even be sharp black and white. It should be gray dullness. And then he was taken off it. So I don't know that we can credit him for any of the lines. He just and he had was that. Uh, and he yeah. was uncredited in the, in, uh, on the titles as well. But uh, he, uh, he uh, worked with, uh, on Citizen Kane with Orson Welles. How well did Herman know William Randolph Hearst and his mistress, Marion Davis? Well, he knew he knew them pretty well. First of all, he had always been interested in Hearst. Hearst was a fascinating character. So even from his newspaper days in New York, Herman had been fascinated by Hearst. And he had even started a play about him, which he never completed at that point. And then when they were in Hollywood, they were part of the group who would go to San Simeon. And he and Marion, who both had problems with alcohol, would be sneaking around drinking. Hearst didn't believe, he was a teetotaler, and he didn't want Marion drinking. So Herman was a bad influence. And mm -hmm. by the end of the 1930s, he was not welcome at San Simeon. But he admired Hearst. I mean, he was both fascinated and admired him. Despite the polit political differences? Well, that was one of the fascinating things. He had gone from very liberal to very conservative and, um, and yet could flip even in a conversation. So, yes, he fascinated him. Now, he gets no credit on, on, uh, on Citizen Kane either. Uh, so was that part of the deal that he made with Orson oh, Welles? No, he he eventually did get credit. Oh. Orson Welles, who was this wonderkind, had this amazing contract with RKO to write, produce, direct, and star in two movies, and he would have final cut, which was never given in the studio system. And that was what outraged everyone in Hollywood, that this neophyte, who was 25 years old, would get this kind of contract, or even 24 when it started. And um, he had imagined doing Heart of Darkness by Joseph mm -hmm. Conrad. That was his plan. But then when they, he, did the, he did the script and it came in way over budget, he had to think of something else. At that point, Herman had been in a car accident and was in total body traction and very miserable. <laughs> and Orson Welles um, would come to visit him. Everyone was mean to Orson Welles when he came out to Hollywood. Herman was one of the few people who was nice to him, and they were very fond of each other. Um, by this time, 1939, so Herman was um, in his early 40s, and Orson Welles was much younger. So it was sort of a you know mentor-mentee um, relationship to a certain ex extent. And he and, and Orson Welles would sit around trying to think of an idea for Welles to do for his movie, Once Heart of Darkness Fell Through. And they thought of this idea about doing a person where all different people would have mm. memories, and it would sort of kaleidoscopically create a portrait. They didn't start with Hearst. They came to Hearst. And the more they talked about it, the more obvious it seemed that Herman should write the screenplay because Herman knew Hearst, and Herman was an experienced screenwriter, which Wells was not, although he was a good editor. So Wells hired Herman to write the original screenplay, and they really hadn't talked about credit 
but definitely it was assumed that it was going to be Wells having credit for everything. Well, Wells then, acknowledged that Herman created Rosebud, the famous sled that symbolized Hearst's longing. Is there any truth to the rumor that Rosebud was Hearst's name for Marion Davis's genitals? I wondered how you were going to phrase that. <laughs> it's such a ridiculous thing. No. It's not true. Rosebud was a horse that he, <laughs> I see. the Kentucky Derby winner that he actually won money on. He, in his gambling, he usually lost. And by the way, he did get credit. I mean, he yes, shared the award. Yeah. He shared an Oscar, right, in 1942, yeah. but neither yes. of them attended the, the ceremony. Right. Uh, Wells was in Sorry, South America. That. Could you say it again, please? Sorry, say that again. Which Sorry, thing do you want me to say? I missed that. Could you say I was asking about why neither of them attended the ceremony, the, the Oscar ceremony. Oh, yes. Okay. Wells was in South America working on another film, and Herman was afraid he would misbehave. So he was listening to it on the radio. And when he heard his name announced, he got up and waltzed his wife around the floor. Frank Mankiewicz, his son, was there, so he told me that story, which is very nice. And then Herman's mother-in-law was visiting his wife's sister and they jumped up and drove over in their nightgowns to be danced around the floor too that <laughs> night when he won the oscar so even though he looked down on the movies he was not above enjoying that moment of course my guest is sydney Ladison stern her latest book is the brothers mankowitz from hope heartbreak and Hollywood Classics from the University Press of Mississippi. He went on to write uh, a number of other major screenplays, including Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, The, the Pride of the Yankees. Uh, did he ever get the opportunity to direct as his brother did? Herman didn't care about directing. He cared about writing and having fun. Uh, although once he had done Citizen Kane, he did try to write something else important because he still longed to leave something behind that he was really proud of. He didn't know that Citizen Kane would become the iconic film that it became. Um, so at the end of his life, he was working on um, something about Amy, A I don't know whether it's Amy or A. May Simple McPherson, mm -hmm. who was an evangelist. Mm -hmm. and working on that. But he did the same thing he did with his Citizen Kane um, script, which was show it to her relatives. And her relatives threatened to sue, and that kind of killed that script. And then he died young, 55, died, in 1953. Yeah, yeah. Of what? That's young, right? <laughs> I would think basically, that's young. Me too, me too. He basically drank himself to death. It was um, uremic poisoning, I think, was the, the cause of death. Oh, Everything now, had just, deteriorated. It was very sad. Now, his younger brother, he was 11 years younger. Um, uh, were they close after all? That, that's a big difference in age. Yes. Well, first they started as uh, Herman was the idolized older brother and father figure at the same time. I mean, Herman was very glamorous to a young Joe when he was in the Algonquin group and, at, at, and then later in the movie business. And so he eventually brought Joe out. Joe was being groomed to be an academic 
by his father, and he had no intention of, of doing that. So he, he wrote, Herman, I'm re- I think I have a lot to offer, and I'm ready to get started. So at 19, Herman brought him out to Hollywood, and he started writing titles for silent movies. If by that time, sound had come in. This was 1929. But they, the theaters weren't all equipped for sound, so they were st- the studios were still putting out um, – silent versions as well as sound versions. So Joe had to start with that. Then he worked his way up to dialogue and then actual um, screenplays. He actually got a contract to write titles on a movie called The Dummy that Herman was writing. Uh, so so yes. the writer didn't necessarily write the intertitles. Well, in the early days, they had two. They would be writing. This is the action. It was on one side of the page. It would say, you know, like, man is throttling lady and and then then on the other side it would say i'll get you you know so it was it was titles and it was action but in fact the title writers were very important because they could make or break a movie and sometimes i think with the same footage they could make a tragedy or a comedy depending on what the title said did they get along well was there a sibling rivalry here uh yes and yes (laughs) (laughs) um Herman was never competing with Joe the way Joe eventually realized he was with Herman. Herman, it was all about Herman. You know, Herman just went through life living his life. Joe was looking at Herman and trying to emulate him and adored him. And then over the years when they were out in Hollywood, Herman started slowly drifting downhill. And Joe was always a go-getter and worked very hard and um, took it, even though... He eventually yearned to write plays instead of movies or in addition to movies. He threw himself into screenwriting. And the reason Joe eventually became a director was not because he yearned to be a director. It's because he yearned to control what he had written. They were both writers primarily. And so when he would write a screenplay, he'd envision it a certain way and it would come out nothing like that. So that's why he hoped to become and eventually did become a director. And he got involved with one of the greatest directors of all time, Fritz Lang, uh, making his first American film. As MGM was making a major departure from the usual lavish musicals to make movies like Fury in 1936. Yes, that was Joe. What happened was Joe went to Louis B. Mayer after he had a few successful screenplays and asked if he could become a director. And Mayer said, you have to learn to crawl before you can walk. I'm going to make you a producer. And Joe, who hated being a producer, used to say that was the best definition of being a producer he had ever heard. So if he was going to be a producer, he wanted to do interesting work. And so he had this very dark property about a lynching and a, and a man unjustly accused of a crime. And so he asked if they could use Fritz Lang. And um, that was Fritz Lang's first movie for MGM. And Lang wanted to have the lead played by an African-American, but MGM wouldn't allow it. Uh, uh, so uh, that's interesting. Uh, I guess uh, we're still we're still living in that world. Uh, Joe produced Three Comrades with Margaret Sullivan, Robert Young, and Robert Taylor. That was based on a novel by Eric Maria Remark. Um, uh, it could have been Hollywood's first major openly anti-Nazi film, but the, politics forced that to be watered down as well. Yes, that's interesting in, in two respects. First of all, um, Herman had tried to get a movie produced, The Mad Dog of Europe, about Hitler to warn to warn the United States 
people population about the dangers of the rise of the Nazis, and that went nowhere. This was in the 30s. So they were finally opening up a little bit, um, the studios, to making movies that might portray the Nazis in a negative light, but mostly not because they didn't want to disturb their German market and their overseas market. But Joe was excited to do this property, and he hired as this, this typically at studios, there would be script after script after script, after he got his first screenplay version of it, he hired F. Scott Fitzgerald <laughs> to do a revision. And Fitzgerald, who had failed before as a screenwriter, really needed the money, but he was also taking it seriously, and he tried very hard to do a good script. And Joe's first reaction was, okay, this is fine, now we need more. And he also got him a collaborator. And Fitzgerald, who was about Herman's age, was very insulted, although Joe did not know that. And he, he, Joe had put him through about six rewrites to the extent that finally Fitzgerald wrote him a letter and said, oh, Joe, can't producers ever be wrong? I'm a good writer, honest. And um, so he did not realize Joe uh, was going to bat to keep the sort of Nazi flavor in. The, the censors watered it down so they took they moved the time frame so it couldn't have been nazis they took out any reference to jews they took out jewish characters etc cetera, etc cetera. so they were trying to make it as sort of generic as they could i and, once did a show on this uh, this uh, period and everything changed a little later when uh, a nazi spy was arrested in the united states and uh, we then felt that we could be critical of germany because it was acting as an enemy now, right. although the final film was commercially successful and well-reviewed, didn't the idea that Joe had been unkind to F. Scott Fitzgerald haunt him for many years? It totally haunted him. In fact, he um, said he was devastated because it fed into that view of a producer as this ignorant, coarse person who didn't recognize good writing when he saw it. So those, that letter that I just quoted to you was is in every biography of Fitzgerald. So it just haunted Joe because it was there even more than, than discussions of other things. And finally, revisionist historians revisited some of uh, Fitzgerald's scripts and saw, yeah, maybe he, he was a quintessential great American novelist, but maybe he wasn't as great a screenwriter. And maybe he, Joe really did know something yeah. about screenwriting. But he was a really a producer of some of the most uh, memorable films. He had two big hits with Catherine Hepburn, The Philadelphia yes. Story, and Woman of the Year, 1940, 1942. Um, was Hepburn a problem? No. And in fact, he introduced Hepburn to Spencer Tracy. And that was their first, Woman of the Year was their first movie together. Uh, Joe and Catherine Hepburn were friendly, and she had sent him the script and didn't tell him, the second one, the Woman of the Year, and didn't tell him who had written it. And he he uh, encouraged MGM to buy it. But when he introduced, he, he, he and Spencer Tracy were really good friends. They'd even roomed together at some point. And Catherine Hepburn, who did not know Spencer Tracy, nevertheless wanted him for this movie, for Woman of the Year. And he and uh, Catherine Hepburn were walking somewhere on the lot, and she had platform shoes on, which she liked to wear to be tall and intimidating. And they <laughs> ran into Spencer Tracy, and he introduced him, and, and she said, Mr. Tracy, I think you're a little bit short for me. And, and Joe said, don't worry, he'll cut you down to size. Ooh. 
Who was responsible for the anti-feminist ending of Women of the Year, where Hepburn gives up her successful career and displays comic incompetency in the kitchen? Well, it's interesting because she, the dialogue doesn't in the dialogue the the Spencer Tracy character says no of course you shouldn't give up your career but the but the visual and the intent is as you described it so that people come away with that impression according to Joe when they went for previews the audience didn't like it and Joe it was Joe's feeling and Joe was great on women in general but Joe's feeling oh they needed her brought down a pig which I I mean I feel Almost all of Katherine Hepburn's movies are The Taming of the Shrew. She's always got to be brought down. That was the agenda, right? So um, Katherine Hepburn reshot this last scene with all these mishaps in the kitchen, which I admit is a really funny scene. And she said it was the biggest piece of she'd ever seen. Joe made his directorial debut in 1946 with Dragonwick, starring Vincent Price and Gene Turney. Was he having an affair with Jean Turney during the time? Uh, she later wound up with JFK, didn't she? Right, right. Well, he definitely had an affair with her during that time. He had many affairs. And then, yes, JFK came onto the set of one of her um, movies, and she ended up having a long affair with him until he decided he was going to run for office. So he put that to an end. Now, um, as a director, did Joe have a specific style? Did, can we spot a uh, a Joe Mankiewicz film? I don't think you would spot the film out of his directing style. I think there are elements in his movies that are common to the to the many movies. But what he did after Dragonwick was he set about learning the craft of directing and directed several movies that he hadn't written. Um, the late George Apley, The Ghost of Mrs. Muir, Escape, which was based mm-hmm. on a Galsworthy novel, and learning how to do it. Because his eventual goal was to write and then direct. So it would be, they didn't call it the auteur theory then, but mm-hmm. that's what he wanted to do. And later he winds up with All About Eve, which we'll get to in a moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joe, Joe was married three times, but he had affairs with a remarkable number of famous actresses, Joan Crawford, Loretta Young, Judy Garland. Uh, did he work with all of those actresses, and did he have um, any impact on, on how, their affair, how their careers went? Well, with not, he did not work with Loretta Young. Um, he didn't actually work with Judy Garland, and he wanted to help Judy Garland as a person. Joe was fascinated by psychiatry, so he was mm-hmm. always having these affairs and encouraging actresses to go into therapy because he thought it was the answer to a lot of problems, which it probably was. Joan Crawford, he was her producer. He produced many of her movies while he was at MGM, and he tried to help her. She wanted. She wanted to act more. You know, she wanted to be less of a movie star and more of an actress. So he tried to help her, but she really did best in her traditional roles as poor, poor working girl with beautiful um, wardrobe and two suitors, right? Linda Darnell was another one he had an affair with, and that one went on for a long time. And, and again, he did he have an effect on their career? I'm not sure I could say that, but it, they, these, he was very in love with these various women along the way even though he was married almost all the time. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at large on WBAI. Uh, we're at 99.5 FM. And uh, we'll be back with more 
right after this. When you see a guy reach for stars in the sky, you can bet that he's doing it for some doll. When you spot a John waiting out in the rain, chances are he's insane, as only a John can be for a Jane. When you meet a gent paying all kinds of rent for a flat that could flatten the Taj Mahal, call it sad, call it funny. Another movie involving the Mankiewicz brothers, and uh, we'll get back to my conversation with Sidney Ladinson Stern in just a moment. We're talking about her fascinating book, The Brothers Mankiewicz, Hope, Heartbreak, and Hollywood Classics, published by University Press of Mississippi. But first, uh, I'd like to take a few minutes to talk to you about something very important. Like, like most public radio stations across the country, WBAI has been hit quite hard by the pandemic. A lot of our longtime supporters have been forced economically to pull their support for the station, which is why we are now asking anyone who is able to, in this time of crisis, to please step up and make a contribution of any amount to help keep community radio and Lentilopit at large on the air and, and coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. And the way to do that is to call right now, 516-620-3602. That's 516 620 3602, or go to our website, give2wbai.org. That's give and then the number 2wbai.org. And one way to support the station without having to shell out a lot of money at any one time is to become a BAI buddy. Uh, there are listeners who contribute $10 or more each month to keep the station running and to show their support for what we do on this show. And joining me now to tell you about a special event that anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy in the name of our show will be invited to attend is my executive producer, Jesse Lent. Hi, Jesse. Hi, Leonard. Great to be here. Hello, everyone. Yes, if you sign up to become a BAI buddy, as Leonard just said, this is someone who makes a sustaining contribution of $10 or more a month to support WBAI in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. You will be invited to attend a private teleconference with Leonard that we are calling My Dinner with Leonard, uh, but you're obviously not required to eat dinner. This is just something that we thought would be fun as a way uh, for listeners like you to get to ask Leonard anything you'd like or tell him anything you'd like. I know when I met Leonard, it was great to tell him about certain interviews that really uh, meant a lot to me and resonated with me. So the way to do that is by, to become a BAI buddy, that is, is by calling 516-620-3602 or by going to the website give to wbaiorg Again, the number is 516-620-3602 or give to wbai.org that's give them the number 2 is the website now Leonard wait wait Lockhart, Jesse I want to yeah, I want to ask you a question um we've already haven't we already filled one dinner with with Leonard uh, is this a second dinner that we're talking about or are we, we just going to split up the the people who who call into two dinners on the dates that they are most comfortable attending well we're going to figure out all the logistics once we get to the end of the drive which is still in full effect mm. of course um but unfortunately yes um, <laughs> what we're hoping to do is offer people a couple of 
days and see what would work mm. best. We're thinking maybe around dinner time, you know, seven o'clock perhaps. But again, this really depends on the 20, 30 people or more, we hope, who end up signing up to do this. But again, yes, that's a great point. Um, originally, this was just something we were going to do for 10 listeners. And then that filled up and and Leonard said, why why not? Let's do let's do another 10. Um, well, more people kept on saying they want to be part of it. Exactly. And so we, we've, uh, you know, we've been asked uh, by management to just keep on pressing, <laughs> keep on asking people to stick with this. Uh, it's a little untraditional. Uh, I know that you've never really done anything like this in your 43 no. years, right, Leonard? I've met listeners what- and I've always enjoyed talking with listeners, but this will be a fun experience because they'll all be interacting with each other as well. And they, they'll probably wind up talking to each other as well. Exactly. There's something different. It's a new kind of mode of communication, I guess, that we're all getting used to in the pandemic. But I think this is uh, one way that you can communicate. I know that speaking personally, it's very hard not to feel isolated right now. I know that I have a lot of friends who feel the same way. So, right. It's it's not just a way you're not just uh, sharing a meal or a glass of wine or a snack or a coffee with Leonard. You're also sharing it with nine of your fellow listeners, people who also tune in uh, for the kind of in-depth interviews that we bring you weekdays one to two here on Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm going to give the number out again, Leonard. That is 516-620-3602. The website give to WBAI.org. And we should say this is just one way that you can support. It's not the only way, but if it's if something that you'd like to do, that's great. We need a show of support. However, you can do it. The thing that's nice about BAI Buddies is it allows us to plan for the future because it gives us a sense of cash flow. And you can keep it going as long as you're comfortable and you can quit whenever you want. Uh, the money will come out of your what? Uh, your, uh, your checking, your credit card, account or credit you like. card. You tell us. Yeah. Whatever's so, easiest. So, Jesse, I want to get back to my guest because there's so much to talk about uh, in discussing the Brothers Mankiewicz. Is there any other thing that we have to um, talk about other than we hope that people appreciate what we're doing and will support uh, us in keeping bringing these long form interviews on topics that we hope will be of interest to 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 listeners? Only that. Our regular listeners are probably used to the sound of my voice now coming here at the half and asking you to support the station. All I would say is this isn't like a commercial break when you're watching TV or listening to a commercial radio station. It isn't even really like a a break on on more uh, mainstream uh, public radio stations. When we ask you for for these contributions, I mean, you know, every single one really counts and really helps us to stay alive. You know, as we, Leonard and I always say, it's not uh, just a catchy phrase. It, it, it is 100 percent the truth. We are powered by your donations. Only that keeps WBAI on the air and keeps Leonard Lopate at large coming to you weekdays one to two. So that was all I wanted to say. And I'm loving this interview. So of course I want to let you get back to it. I'm sure that's all the listeners want. One last time, the number is 516-620-3602. The website is give to WBAI.org. Give them the number two WBAI.org. And to everyone who's contributed through this drive so far or is doing so right now, 
from all of us. Thanks. And thank you, Jesse. And uh, remember, this is Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. I'm speaking with Sydney Ladison Stern uh, about her book called The Brothers Mankiewicz, published by uh, University of Mississippi Press. Um, we played something from Guys and Dolls because that was one of Joe's hits. But he had a whole bunch of hits in the 50s. Perhaps his most popular and profitable film uh, was all about Eve or, or was or was Guys and Dolls bigger or the Barefoot Contessa? Well, Guys and Dolls definitely made the most money, but I would say he lives on in, uh, you know, his immortality for all about Eve most. He's most associated with that because it was original to him and he directed it and he won the second two of his um, record-making back-to-back Oscars for writing and directing. Those were his second two because he had won two the year before for A Letter to Three Wives, which I wanted to Did anybody to else ever do that? Win no, no one two Oscars two years in a row? Two for writing and directing back-to-back, right? No oh, one wow. has, has beat that. In fact, All About Eve's Oscar nominations have been um, duplicated but not exceeded by Titanic and La La Land. So, it also revived Betty Davis's career and yes. pretty much introduced Marilyn Monroe to the movies. Yes, Marilyn Monroe had a nice little role there as uh, as as the student of the Copa, a graduate of the Copacabana School of Acting. <laughs> One of my favorite lines. Did Joe ever write the famous line? Did he write the famous line? Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. He he not only wrote it. He wrote it. He wrote it as early as the treatment. I mean, mm-hmm. his treatment was very complete, and right in the middle was "Fasten your seatbelts; it's going to be a bumpy night." Now, Betty Davis had a, a reputation of being difficult to work with. Did she get along well with Joe? Yes. Um, when Joe had originally um, it, it cast Claudette Colbert as Margot. And people always say, oh, my God, I can't imagine it without Betty mm-hmm. Davis. And Joe always said it would have been different, but she would have been great, too. But it's so identified in our minds with Betty Davis, it's hard to imagine. And he was told after the announcement was made, oh, she's going to be rewriting it. She's going to show up with legal pads full of notes and everything. And that was not true. She thought it was a wonderful script and a wonderful screen screen idea and role. And she fell in love with it. And she also fell in love with her leading man. Which seems to have happened a lot at that time. Yeah. Maybe it right. still does. Right. He left Hollywood and moved back to New York for a time was, uh, because he wanted to give up movies. He was doing very well. Uh, but did he think that he would be doing that he should write for the Broadway stage instead? Well, he, in addition, he really left at the peak of his career um, after um, All About Even. He did a few more movies for 20th Century Fox to finish out his contract. Then he had a three-movie contract with MGM to do three movies for $250,000 apiece, which was very oh nice money in, in 1951, etc. So he wanted his children to grow up in New York. He always bad-mouthed Hollywood, even though that was the hand-feeding him very well, I might say. And um, so he 
for, if he moved back in 1951, he spent the rest of his life hoping to write for theater and never did. But he continued to write for movies and direct movies, sometimes ones that he hadn't written. Well, he had uh, two successful films in the 50s, The Barefoot Contessa with Humphrey Bogart and Ava Gardner and Guys and Dolls with Marlon Brando, Frank Sinatra. So I would assume he was very much in demand. And then along comes Cleopatra. Right. Cleopatra. I, I, I think you can break Joe's life into B.C. and A.C. Cleopatra <laughs> really ruined him in many ways. He was never the same. He lost his confidence. He lost his help. It was a debacle in many ways. Um, and yet <laughs> it's, it's historical. He even had taken it out of his who's who's biography for many years, which is ridiculous because it was so much a part of, of history. Now, Elizabeth Taylor insisted that either Joe or George Stevens direct Cleopatra. Um, he was hesitant, Joe was hesitant to accept the job despite the, the, the lucrative contract. Uh, so uh, Stevens wound up with it. You, you write no. that the film, oh, go ahead. No, it was Ruben, it was Ruben Mamoulian who was working oh. on it at that point. And um, what happened was Elizabeth Taylor was now an independent contractor, and she she got a fabulous contract from Fox to do this. And it was so expensive that the Fox board of directors and the president insisted they start shooting even before they had a finished script, which is a disastrous thing to do in a small movie. And it's even unimaginable on such a big movie with so many sets that had to be constructed. Mm -hmm. And they did it in England because she wanted to shoot overseas for tax reasons. And Mamoulian didn't want to do this either, shoot without a, a completed script, but he was forced into it. And Fox was spiraling down, as was the rest of the studio system at that point. And so you write that. The f oh, go Joe. ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, so the head of Fox pulled Joe away from a screenplay he was writing on Lawrence Durrell's Alexandria Quartet, which he just loved working on, and said, you've got to help us rescue Fox. If you rescue Cleopatra, that will rescue Fox. And so his agent said, just hold your nose for 15 weeks and take the money and run. And so two years later, he was a broken man. <laughs> he, he, uh, we'll get to that. You, you write that yeah. the film cost more than $30 million involved, yeah. quote, four international relocations, three suicide attempts, two life-threatening illnesses, one gigantic, gigantic adulterous affair, obviously the one between Taylor and Richard Burton. And uh, the... Uh, was Joe blamed for the high cost? Did yes. the film really need 6,000 extras? Well, yeah, I think, I don't know whether, I, I would not say whether it did or it didn't, but the, the reason it had such terribly high costs was that ordinarily films are, are scripted and planned so that you shoot every scene that needs a location at the same time. You don't do it in order. So they were constructing sets before Joe was writing at night and directing during the day and trying to stay ahead of what he was doing. It went from England back to Hollywood where they were going to shoot on the studios. They had broken all the sets, brought them back. Then they decided to shoot in Italy. So they started over several times. So they kept constructing sets and many things went wrong, including Elizabeth Taylor's illnesses and she had to have surgery from her tracheotomy, et cetera, et cetera. So the, these gigantic multi-thousand dollar, million dollar sets would be constructed and sit idle. 
expensive talent would be called and they wouldn't be needed yet. So it just sort of everything multiplied. And then at the end, as Fox was imploding and the the board of directors were sending out all these ridiculous um, pronouncements, they fired the head of Fox and they tried to shut down filming, et cetera, et cetera. And then they brought back Zanuck, who then blamed Joe. And Joe had publicly humiliated him. He publicly humiliated him and said Joe wanted complete control and that it was Joe's fault they shot in in continuity, which was not true. Joe had been begging for years, please shut down. Let me write it so we know what we have to shoot. And so it was just humiliating. And, and he was mortified at the final result. It was cut down. He had always wanted two films, Caesar and Cleopatra and Antony and Cleopatra. And he was not going to get that. But it was originally cut into a pretty long film. And then the theater people kept cutting it down. The movie theater people kept cutting it down so people could get home, et cetera. And it got cut, cut, cut. Some of it's been restored. A lot of the footage has been lost. It's gorgeous. But well, but he, uh, but it was a big success. I, I'm sure it made back its its money, although he hated it and always refused to to right. discuss it. Uh, why did he do so so little work after Cleopatra? Was he discouraged, or were people refusing to hire him? Uh, he was nominated for an Oscar in 1972 for his last film, Sleuth, also a right. hit, wasn't it, with Laurence Olivier and Michael Caine? Yes, yes. He he liked to say it was the movie that the entire cast was nominated for because. <laughs> It was a cast of two. But he was, no, it wasn't that he wasn't in demand. It was that he was so depressed and blocked. And his health was ruined from all the uppers and downers he'd taken. It took him a long time to recover from that as well. So he did um, four more movies after Cleopatra, but it was it was not the same. And he was very discouraged. Did several of his uh, children work in show business? Although uh, his son, Frank, was a political advisor to Bobby Kennedy. And and, uh, his grandson, Benjamin, uh, many people will recognize as the host uh, on Turner Classic Movies. Ben Well, that's the Herman branch. That's the Herman Uh branch. Herman's two sons were Don and Frank, and Don became an important screenwriter, and Don's son, John, is a screenwriter. Frank, the one you're talking about, who was the only person I had ever interviewed from the Mankiewicz family before because of his political work, and I had written a biography of Gloria Steinem, and they had worked together. So Frank was the one who, yes, announced Bobby Kennedy's death to the world, and his two sons, Josh and Ben are both on TV all the time. Josh is on Dateline, and we see Ben all the time on TCM. Joe's son, Tom, was a very successful screenwriter and and sometimes director as well. His son, Chris, was in the movie business a little bit. He had a, a first son who became an investment banker who was adopted by his stepfather, so he, his last name is at Mankiewicz. And he has a daughter, Alex, who's an artist, who has, she did work in the film industry a little bit, but she's a graphic artist. Do you think that the brothers would have been successful in present day Hollywood? Wow, that's a good question. Because I mean, he died in, uh, uh, Joe died in 1993. They both died uh, uh, before the 21st century. That's true. Well, are there movies that require a lot of interesting dialogue and small scale? I, you, you, I guess not. I, yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're very play-like. 
theater-like in, in their movies, Joe's especially, I think. They're very dialogue-rich, and a lot of actors had a problem with it. So I'd like to think they would. But Joe used to, when in his depression, he used to say, yeah, if I could use the words like I can't say, then, mm-hmm. um, you know, then I would be very successful. And sort of railing against present-day movies and hearkening back to the studio system, which he had so abused in his years when he worked there. Do you have any involvement in the upcoming biopic uh, that Netflix is doing with Gary Oldman playing Herman? I don't have any involvement, but I'm extremely curious about it. Um, I've seen an earlier script because uh, David Fincher's father wrote the original script and knew Herman, I think. And so I'm very um, much looking forward to seeing it. The original, the script I saw was, I thought, captured the Herman I think I know, the lovable curmudgeon the brilliant guy who was also very self-destructive. I have to leave it there. Uh, my guest, Sydney Lattison Stern, uh, her previous books are Toyland, the high stakes game of the toy industry, Gloria Steinem, her passion, politics and mystique. And we've been discussing her latest, The Brothers Mankiewicz, how heartbreak and Hollywood classics, uh, wait a minute, The Brothers Mankiewicz, hope, Heartbreak and Hollywood Classic, published by University Press of Mississippi. Thank you so much for being on our show today. It's been fascinating. Thank you so much. I love being here. And that brings us to the end of today's show. I want to uh, give special thanks to Deborah Freeman, who prepared today's interview. Uh, If you're new to our program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're available as an iTunes podcast. And you can also find links to all of our past shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. And don't forget to check out Leonard Lopate at Large on Facebook and Twitter. But before I sign off today, I'd like to take just a moment to ask you, to remind you uh, that we need your support for this station. If you care about Leonard Lopate at Large and, and all of the other great programs on WBAI, we need your help to keep this station alive, especially now the pandemic has really uh, hurt us financially. Please step up now and make a contribution at whatever level you're comfortable with. And as um, Jesse and I were discussing earlier, if you become a BAI buddy right now by making a monthly contribution of $10 or more in the name of this show, you can attend uh, a teleconference event we're calling My Dinner with Leonard. You have to, uh, when, when you make your contribution at 516-620-3602 or go to our website, give to wbai.org. Uh, tell them that you want to attend the dinner. Also tell them that you are making the contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. From all of us at the station, thank you so much if you do. And thank you so much for listening. We hope you'll join us again tomorrow when Gerard Coppell will discuss his book, Not a Gentleman's Work, The Untold Story of a Gruesome Murder at Sea and the Long Road to Truth. Um, A little respite from discussing the coronavirus or some of the other things that have been going on, not that they aren't important. Hope to see you then.